Now is everybody happy? Now that he's bludgeoned to death, is that good enough for everyone? The hurt is worse now because he's not suffering like we are. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Jeffrey Dahmer. There's probably not another name more synonymous with serial killer or cannibal psycho. Dahmer is a fixture in true crime across the globe for the manner in which he brutally took the lives of 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991. He sought out his victims, mostly black men at gay bars, malls, and bus stops, and would lure them home with promises of money or sex, and then he'd give them alcohol laced with drugs before strangling them to death. After these men died, he would perform sex acts with the corpses and then dismember or dispose of them, often keeping body parts as souvenirs. He frequently took photos of the victims at, at different points during his crimes so that he could relive the experience over and over again. Dahmer was finally stopped after his arrest in 1991 and was ultimately sentenced to 16 life terms. Dahmer's crimes may have been covered many times over on TV and books, movies, documentaries, and probably just about every true crime podcast out there. But because the coverage of this case is so prolific, we wanted to come at Dahmer from a different direction. That's right. Instead of focusing on Dahmer's horrific acts, we're discussing how he met his demise. This episode is about the death of Dahmer. Now, although most of y'all know all about Dahmer and the awful stuff he did, we got to do a quick recap to set the scene and really understand what happened when he was murdered. In case you haven't figured it out by now, when we do one of these, if we're talking about the victim, which in this case, as weird as it is to say, Jeffrey Dahmer is the victim, and we try to give as much background about them as we can. So Dahmer was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to parents Lionel and Joyce. He was described as an energetic and happy child. Sure, and I bet he was the cutest kid, too, and always colored in the lines. <laughs> Don't worry. Even those who knew him said the happiness didn't last long. He, when he was four years old, he had to have a surgery to correct a double hernia, and after that, it just seemed to change him. The surgery involved a traumatic and painful recovery, and then came along a younger brother. I can understand how having a younger brother could make you kind of, um, well, never mind. You were saying... I knew it. Anyway, between the birth of a younger brother and his family moving frequently, Dahmer became increasingly withdrawn. Add to that a fascination with animal bones that he developed at a young age, and I'm talking like really young age, uh, the recipe for disaster starts to become pretty obvious. Dahmer would study how to clean and preserve animal bones he'd found from dead animals around his family's property and wherever else he encountered them. And uh, do you know what he called the animal bones when he was a kid? And I mean like a little kid, like, you know, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, Scooby snacks? It's not bad. He, he actually referred to them as fiddlesticks. Oh. They were Jeffy's little fiddlesticks. He also collected large insects and the skulls of small animals preserved in jars of formaldehyde. And uh, this is all according to Brian Masters' book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer. Again, there's lots of books out there. We'll have books and different resources we've reviewed in the show notes in case you want to do uh, more of a deep dive on uh, the life and death of Jeffrey Dahmer. By the time he became a teenager, Dahmer was disengaged, tense, and basically a loner. Well, playing with his bones and skulls and bugs and all that probably really wouldn't help him make any friends. Right, yeah. So he, he claimed that his compulsions toward necrophilia and murder began around the age of 14, 
But it seems that the breakdown of his parents' marriage and their nasty divorce was the likely catalyst for turning these thoughts into actions. Dahmer also started drinking at age 14, and by the time of his first killing at 18, his alcohol consumption had spun out of control. Now, graduating from high school is supposed to usher in, you know, summer parties and bonfires, buying stuff for your dorm room, heading off to basic training, or, you know, just joining the workforce full-time, but that wasn't the case for Dahmer. Shortly after graduating in 1978, he picked up an 18-year-old hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks. He took Stephen back to his parents' house and got him drunk. Everything seemed fine until Hicks tried to leave. Leaving was something that Dahmer just couldn't bear. Maybe it was the issue with his parents and some stuff with his mom through the divorce. But for some reason, this just really set him off. So Dahmer hit Stephen in the head with a barbell and then strangled him with it. As an 18-year-old, having just committed a murder, he then dismembered Stephen's body, divided his body parts into plastic bags, and buried the bags behind his parents' home. But he wouldn't leave Stephen like that. He would return later to crush the bones with a sledgehammer and then scatter the, the remains, what was left of them, throughout a nearby wooded ravine. And then it was nine years until his next murder? That's right. So Dahmer dropped out of Ohio State University barely after he started, and his dad then insisted, hey, you gotta join the army. So the awkward loner with an alcohol problem who played with animal bones enlisted in late December of 1978. And that would see him go off to Germany, where there's never been any confirmation that he murdered anybody there, and he spent some time overseas before he would come back and get discharged. But his drinking problem never went away. And in early 1981, after being discharged, uh, he returned home to where his uh, dad was in Ohio. And not long after his return, he was arrested for disorderly conduct. So you know what his dad did? Take a guess. Uh, let him sit in jail. No, he sent Dahmer to live with Grandma in Wisconsin. In a surprise to nobody, moving in with Grandma didn't fix the problem. He was still an alcoholic, and Dahmer was arrested the following summer for indecent exposure. And then he was arrested yet again in 1986, this time when two boys accused him of masturbating in front of them. For that crime, he received a whopping one-year probationary sentence. Any thoughts about that? Um, that's very concerning. The whole pattern here is very concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh... It's it's not pretty. I mean, and you know, it's it's easy for us to Monday morning quarterback this thing, but there's definitely um, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of red flags. Anyway, in 1987, while living with Grandma, Dahmer murdered a 25 year old boy named Stephen Tuomi from Michigan. Apparently, he had no intention of killing him. This is according to Dahmer. Had simply intended to just drug him and then explore his body, but. Dahmer says he, he doesn't have any memory of what happened. He just woke up and, and there was Stephen, another Stephen, dead in the, in the room next to him. Yeah, well, it seems like he had a thing for Stephen so far, but he might not have had memory of like what he did or why he did it, but it sounds like he didn't forget what he did afterwards since he got a big old suitcase and took his body back to his grandmother's basement cut it all up, masturbated on the corpse before disposing it. Well, most of it, because he kept his damn head. And then a couple weeks later, boiled the head in a bleach mixture to try and preserve and keep the skull who does that, which he used as stimulus for masturbate. Get a Playboy, stupid! According to Dahmer, this was the point of no return for him. 
It was after this murder that his, quote, obsession with killing went into full swing. And, quote, he didn't even try to stop it after that. He would kill two more victims at his grandmother's house before she kicked him out in 1988. She didn't know anything about his crimes, but he, but she was just tired of his drinking, bringing young men to her house, and the occasional foul smells that were emanating from her basement. Shortly after moving into his own apartment, and I mean very shortly, like not, not even a month, Dahmer was arrested for drugging and sexually assaulting a 13-year-old Laotian boy he had lured to his apartment under the guise of taking some nude photos. So essentially he said, hey, you want to come to my place and make some money? I just want to take some pictures of you. And this kid, who was 13 at the time, was like, okay, yeah, sure. So he agrees to that, which, by the way, yeah, that's a crime. But for what it is, that was what was supposed to happen. Instead, that's not what happened. And I'll get to that in a second. Dahmer's father hires an attorney. And Dahmer pleads guilty in January of 1989, claiming that the boy had appeared much older. And his sentencing for this, this crime wouldn't take place until May of that year. But having pled guilty and awaiting sentencing for sexually assaulting a child, do you think Dahmer chilled out at all? No. He, he met a guy in a bar who Dahmer claims approached him because Dahmer wasn't looking to commit a crime at the time. Nonetheless, Dahmer used his grandmother's basement once again for his evil and horrifying purposes. This victim, a, a man named Anthony Sears, was a model. And Dahmer said he found Sears particularly attractive and didn't want to, quote, lose him. Again, we see this issue keep coming up throughout all of these occurrences where he has this whole, I didn't want them to leave me, uh, whatever you want to call it. So Dahmer wants to keep Sears with him longer than he'd been able to keep any of his other victims. He's, he's kind of escalating this keeping them thing. and In an effort to accomplish this, he actually mummified Sears' head and genitals. In May of 89, Dahmer put on his best show for the court that was sentencing him on the sexual assault charges of that 13-year-old. There was also a charge for enticing. He told the judge how he'd seen the error of his ways and that his arrest marked a turning point in his life. I mean, he really poured it on. He didn't mean any of it, but, you know, he was trying to get out of trouble. His attorney argued that Dahmer needed treatment instead of incarceration, and the judge agreed. Dahmer received a one-year prison sentence on day release, which allowed him to work during the day and go to prison at night, and then there was also a five-year probationary term tacked onto the end of that. So we're doing part-time prison, and I guess we didn't look at all the crimes previously to see that there's sort of a a buildup here. You know, we've got the we're bringing this kid back to take naked pictures of him, and before that we had masturbating in front of kids. We're going to start to see some pattern there that maybe if he needs treatment, he needs kind of intensive inpatient in custody behind bars treatment. Yeah, and, and the worst part of that is, um, yeah, I totally agree with you, right? I mean, you, you can clearly look at a, even if you don't know about him murdering Stephen Hicks at 18, you know, it's documented. He's arrested and charged with these other crimes that you referred to. And, and this particular one where he's, you know, he's told this 13-year-old boy, hey, I, you know, I want to come take some nude pictures of you, which is illegal. Right. Whether um, the boy says cool or not, it's illegal. To and, be to be clear, when they got back to his place, that's not what happened. Then he sexually assaults him. Right. And so, you know, that's what he's pleading to. So it, it really, honestly, this kind of just boggled my mind. And that's not even the worst part because he didn't even serve his whole sentence. 
The judge actually granted a request Dahmer made for early release after serving only 10 months of his jail-by-night sentence. Oh, dear Lord. Over the next two years, Dahmer would go on to kill 12 more people. It seems from here, wickedness completely consumes Dahmer. This isn't a slippery slope of evil. This is an insatiable need to burrow to even deeper depths of depravity. He crosses the Rubicon of disturbing and disgusting behavior into the absolutely unthinkable. Rather than recount this period where he devolved in the same level of detail, I'll just hit some of the mileposts along the way, marking the path to become the monster we think of when we hear his name today. At one point, he accidentally destroyed a victim's skull while trying to dry it in his oven, causing it to actually explode. Describing this incident and everything with this victim to the police, he told them that he felt, quote, rotten about the murder, not because he killed the victim, but because he was unable to keep anything from the victim's body. Well, that is just disgusting. And I guess the dude, though, it's not like he can call up an archaeologist or an anthropologist or whatever and say, hey, you got any tips for drying out a head in the oven so it doesn't pop? Yeah, I mean, I, thankfully the internet wasn't around because my guess is if I Googled that, I could probably find it out now. And he didn't have that benefit. Otherwise, right. who knows what would have happened. Unsurprisingly, Dahmer developed rituals as his killings progressed. He, he experimented with chemical means of disposal and often then began to consume the flesh of his victims. He also attempted crude lobotomies. Oh, are we almost at a point where I don't have to listen to what he did to people? Somebody needs to stop this bag of shit long before now. There were clues. Yeah, for sure. We're, we're getting there. Uh, but but not before one more. I mean, this is absolutely enraging. You're going to want to get up and leave. Dahmer was hoping to put his victims into a permanent submissive state by doing these, you know, low jack lobotomies. By drilling into people's skulls while they were alive and injecting them with acid in their brains. That's oh. what he was doing. And on May 27, 1991, one of Dahmer's neighbors called the police to report that an Asian boy was running naked in the street. When the police arrived, the boy was incoherent. Care to guess why? I, he, I'm guessing he was either drugged or he was partially attempted lobotomied. Those are, those are good guesses. Um, now, remember where we are for a moment. I think it's important to just kind of set the stage. We're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's 1991. Police show up to find this boy, and now guess who's there with the boy? Well, of course, Dahmer. Right. So when Dahmer, a white man who is in this generally poor minority community, tells the police that this boy is his 19-year-old lover, the police essentially decide, we don't want anything to do with this. So the police escort Dahmer and the boy home, brushing this off as some sort of a, you know, and I'm putting this in air quotes, you can't see me, but a homosexual domestic disturbance that they just don't want any part of. They don't want to deal with it. They barely look around Dahmer's apartment at all. In fact, Dahmer afterwards said that an officer, quote, peeked his head around in the bedroom but didn't really take a good look and then left after telling Dahmer to take care of the boy. Had the police bothered to do just the slightest search, they would have found the body of Tony Hughes, Dahmer's 12th victim. Instead, they left, and as soon as they did... Dahmer injected hydrochloric acid into the boy's brain, killing him. Oh my, they're so freaking close. They had him right there, but everybody has ignored this based on all their own issues and thoughts. This one, it sounds like it was thinking that homosexuals are some kind of weird creatures or something and just not looking out for everyone like this poor boy who couldn't say, wait a minute, I'm not here of my free will and this guy's doing weird stuff. 
you have to wonder, like, how many times something like that might have happened, not just with Dahmer, but anywhere in the world where maybe it's a man and a woman or whatever that, oh, no, just my girlfriend. She just had a little too much to drink or she's been doing some drugs, but she's all right. I'll take her home and... Gabby Petito. I mean, you remember that? He's running naked in yeah. the street. Something's wrong. Yeah, at least like I don't know. Search the search the apartment. Which they go in. That's the crazy part, right? They're in there. They're literally inside of this apartment while there's a dead body and all kinds of other weird stuff. And somehow they don't see any of that. I hope that I think this has happened, but I certainly hope it has. That law enforcement have learned from these things and perhaps are a bit more thorough knowing that things like this have happened. Because, you know, and these guys, I'm not saying the cops were bad guys. They probably thought everything was cool. But that thought ended up getting this kid killed. That was a turning point. If that kid had been rescued and survived, he would have been able to say, this is what happened in that apartment. This is what this dude was doing to me. Maybe it would have kicked things Ah, I don't know. Yeah, it's frustrating. The bad part is the story gets worse. Well, how for sake can it get any worse? So the boy who was wandering in the street was 14 years old, and Dahmer wasn't even aware of this. But he was a younger brother of the 13-year-old Laotian boy that Dahmer had molested three years before. Oh, dear God. Dahmer went on to kill four more men before he was finally arrested on July 22nd, 1991. Two months later? Wow. Two Milwaukee police officers picked up Tracy Edwards, a 32-year-old black man who was wandering the streets with handcuffs dangling from his wrist. Tracy told them that a, quote, weird dude, which uh, frankly is spot on, had drugged and restrained him. Thankfully, they decided to investigate his claims. He led them to Dahmer's place, and when they arrived, Dahmer calmly offered to get the keys for the handcuffs. Given the way that, you know, what happened the last time with the police, you you can almost kind of understand. He's like, oh, well, whatever, I'm not going to get caught. If it worked once before, it'll probably work again. So let's just play nice and be the helpful person. And who knows, they'll probably give me a donut and leave. (laughs) Right. So Tracy tells the officer that Dahmer had threatened him with a knife and that the knife was in the bedroom. When the officer went in to corroborate the story and looking for this knife, he happened to notice Polaroids of dismembered bodies. Oh, damn. Supposedly, while Dahmer was being arrested, he mumbled, For what I did, I should be dead. Ooh, yeah, but I don't know, for somebody like this, and this is kind of a problem with our whole story here, death is too good for this cat. Hmm, I hear you. Police would go on to discover a head in the refrigerator, three more in the freezer, preserved skulls, jars containing genitalia, and an extensive gallery of macabre Polaroid photos of the victims in Dahmer's House of Horrors. You remember the altar from episode 26, the one about Heather Tolchief? Oh, please don't remind me. Yeah, well, in case anybody was questioning you on the Feats Don't Fail Me Now comment, Dahmer said uh, after the fact that he had been planning to build his own altar for from victims' skulls adorned with incense and globe lights. He had hoped the altar would be, quote, a place where he could feel at home. Oh, gosh. Now, Dahmer's trial began in January 1992. Lionel and his second wife attended the trial throughout. Who's Lionel? That's his dad. Oh, okay. Dahmer initially pleaded not guilty to all charges, despite having confessed to the killings during police interrogation. He eventually changed his plea to guilty by way of insanity. The gruesome details of his behavior then played into his defense. He could argue, or his attorneys would argue on his behalf, that this just proved that he had to be insane because only somebody who was crazy would do the things that he had done, could do the things that he had done. And on February 15, 1992, after about 10 hours of deliberation, the jury returned its verdict. Guilty and sane on all counts. 
Amen. After being convicted and and sentenced, uh, Dahmer was sent to Columbia Correctional Institution in South Central Wisconsin. And reportedly, he adjusted pretty well to prison life there. He spent about the first year apart from the general population. He was in solitary confinement for his protection from other inmates, given the nature and notoriety of his crimes. But after a year of isolation, Dahmer was restless. It's been reported that he told family members that he didn't care if he died. He wanted to interact more with other inmates, and it looked like that if he did, there was a good chance that that would happen, too. Because on July 3rd, 1994, an inmate named Osvaldo Duruthi tried to slash Dahmer's throat with a razor right in front of guards during a prisoner church service. That's bad taste. Duruthi had fashioned a shank by attaching blades from his prison razor to an old toothbrush handle. The shank broke before it did any serious damage to Dahmer's neck, and he continued to participate in regular prison activities. See, that's the problem with making shanks out of prison supplies. The state buying them from the lowest bidder, so they aren't exactly high quality. Duruthi said that he has no regrets and would do it again. He said that he wanted to kill Dahmer. He ate people, but I guess God was watching over me and didn't want me to kill him. That's a direct quote. <laughs> uh, so Dahmer was actually going to church? Yeah, he claimed to find God while incarcerated. He'd obtained a copy of the Bible, supposedly read it, and was even granted permission by the prison to be baptized by a local pastor. And that pastor visited Dahmer weekly. In fact, their last meeting was the day before Thanksgiving in 1994. Five days later, on November 28, 1994, death, which had permeated his entire adult life, would finally find Dahmer himself. Did this, the Dorothy guy that uh, shanked him, did he get in any kind of trouble for that? He sure did. He actually got an extra five years tacked onto his sentence, which again, he says was totally worth it. His words, not mine. He's also told news outlets that he pretended to be crazy to get moved to the prison where Dahmer was. Originally, Dorothy was in another kind of nearby facility, but when he heard Dahmer was over at the place where he was being held, he hatched a plan to get sent there. You know, I wish somebody maybe, I don't know, what, 10, 12 years before this, seeing the crap that Dahmer was doing, had been that intent on stopping him as old Dorothy was. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that. Ironically, at his sentencing, where he was given life without parole, Dahmer said he was ready for death. Frankly, I want a death for myself. I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Having already survived an assassination attempt and apparently ready to die, Dahmer left his cell to do some Monday morning cleaning in the prison gym showers. This is oh, oh, I can't think of a less enjoyable job than cleaning prison gym showers. <laughs> oh, Yeah, so this was a job that had been assigned to Dahmer, and, and two other inmates were also assigned to clean with him, uh, a guy named Jesse Anderson and another fellow named Christopher Scarver. Now, as they were cleaning, there's a period of about 20 minutes that the men were left completely unsupervised by prison guards. Around 8.10 a.m., Dahmer was discovered on the bathroom floor he was supposed to be cleaning. Instead, his blood pooled around him while he laid dying next to a toilet. Scarver had struck the 34-year-old Dahmer over the head twice with a metal bar and smashed his head against the wall. According to Scarver, Dahmer didn't fight back. Instead, he had seemed to just accept his fate. Scarver then proceeded to bludgeon Anderson. Dahmer was pronounced dead an hour later at the hospital. Anderson died two days later from his injuries. Scarver walked back to his cell, and when a guard asked him why he was back so early, Scarver said, quote, God told me to do it. You'll hear about it on the 6 o'clock news. 
Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer dead. In Wisconsin today, Jeffrey Dahmer died. He was murdered in the prison where he was sent in 1991 for murdering 17 men and boys. In 1991, the revelation that he had eaten or otherwise defiled some of his victims revolted the nation. His death may not be as shocking. Jeffrey Dahmer met his death this morning while working as a janitor, cleaning a prison bathroom. Another inmate is suspected of beating him to death at this prison in Wisconsin. Authorities here say Dahmer died of massive head injuries. A second inmate injured in the attack is in critical condition. Okay, who the heck is the Scarver guy and, and the, the Jesse Anderson getting killed? I thought this was going to be a two-on-one, not a one-on-two. Great points. All right, let's start out with Scarver. So Christopher Scarver was born July 6, 1969 in Milwaukee. He was the second of five children. His mother kicked him out of the house uh, after he dropped out of high school. And from there, Scarver had managed to get a position through the Youth Conservation Corps program as a trainee carpenter. Uh, and, you know, so he kind of put some work into that and, and was trying to make his way doing that. That looked like it was going to be a really good opportunity for him. And one of his program supervisors had supposedly told him that, you know, once he completed this program, he'd become a full-time employee. Uh, but for whatever reason, that just never materialized. It didn't happen. And so after he lost what he considered was his job at the program, Scarver said he began to drink three forties a day of beer and smoked at least four joints a day as well, which I don't know how he's paying for all that stuff, but maybe that's how we get to this next point. So like a lot of us, he needed money. On June 1st, 1990, Scarver went to the office of the training program that, you know, he felt had kind of wronged him and taken this job from him that, you know, he expected to get. There were two men working there at the time, Steve Lohman and John Fayen. When Scarver got there, he demanded money, pointing a gun at Lohman, who was a 27-year-old job training worker. When he was only given $15 in cash, Scarver became enraged, shooting Lohman in the head four times. Then, at gunpoint, he forced Fayen to write him a check for $3,000. This is not a well-thought-out criminal plan by the way well it gets i mean you're yeah Jeez. if you're already putting that together wait hang on for a second <laughs> so scarver fled with the check 15 dollars in cash and fan's credit card within a couple hours scarver's sitting on the stoop of his girlfriend's apartment building when police find and arrest him you want to take a wild guess at what police found in his pockets? Something stupid. Yeah, so uh, the $3,000 check, fan's credit card, and the twenty-five caliber semi-automatic pistol that he had used to murder Loman were all in his pockets when he was arrested less than two hours from the time he committed the crime. A police officer testified that Scarver told the arresting officers he had planned to turn himself in because he knew what he had done was wrong. Several months after the shooting, Scarver told a court-appointed psychologist, quote, I don't know what came over me. I was never in any trouble with the law, never in a fight with anyone. Scarver did offer one possible explanation, though. He said that the voices told him he was the son of God and told him to do what he was there for. He said the voices, a family, including a woman, a man, a little girl, and a boy, had told him that everything was going to be all right, and it was meant to happen like this. According to Scarver, the voices even told him, I'm the chosen one. But in 1992, Christopher, the chosen one, Scarver, was convicted and given a life sentence and sent to Columbia Correctional Institution, the same place as Jeffrey Dahmer. At one time, Scarver claimed that God had told him to murder Dahmer, too. God sure was busy telling all these inmates to kill Dahmer. Dag on. So this voices made me do it deal. Did he actually have like legit mental health issues? Scarver had complained of delusional thoughts while he was in prison. 
prison doctors conducted numerous, I think it was close to a dozen evaluations regarding his mental state up to that point. And at one point, Scarver claimed the food he was eating in prison was behind his mental issues, saying, quote, certain foods I eat cause me to have a psychotic break, adding that bread, refined sugar, those are the main culprits. Oh, Lord, so it's because he wasn't gluten-free that he was having all these problems, the Twinkies made me do it. I mean, what is it? If you go paleo, it'll all work out. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought you'd make a Twinkie comment after that. but I, That's what I, was, I did. I did say about the Twinkies. You so, did? Yeah. Just now? Yeah, in there because of the Twinkies. I'm yeah. losing my mind. Okay. Um, it didn't all start after Dahmer either. During Scarver's trial, the state and defense argued whether a prosecution psychiatrist who had testified at Dahmer's trial would be allowed to cite that testimony in establishing his expertise during Scarver's trial. The defense, rightfully concerned, was kind of afraid that any association with Dahmer would just inflame the jury. I mean, this was really fresh in people's mind. We're right there. We're in the same place. You're going to be pulling from the same jury pool. And so Scarver's trial judge asked if the psychiatrist was going to compare Scarver and Dahmer. The ADA on the case for the state said, absolutely not. The cases have nothing to do with each other. Scarver would offer another theory for his actions in an exclusive with the New York Post in 2015. And again, prison food was involved. Scarver told the publication that his supposed motivation for killing Dahmer was that he grew to despise Dahmer because he would fashion severed limbs out of his prison food to taunt other inmates. He would drizzle packets of ketchup as blood, and it was all very unnerving. He also said that uh, Dahmer would put them in places where people would be, and he crossed the lines with some people, including prisoners and staff, that some people in prison are repentant, but according to Scarver, Dahmer was not one of them. And Scarver claims that he'd just gotten his mop and was filling a bucket with water when somebody poked him in the back, saying, I turned around and... Dahmer and Jesse were kind of laughing under their breath. I looked right into their eyes, and I couldn't tell which had done it. Right, so he's now he's kind of saying, "Well, he's mad because you know they poked him in the somebody poked him in the back during this detail, and he'd seen all these things that Dahmer had done with his food and whatever." So the three men split up, and Scarver followed Dahmer. At this point, he says he grabbed a metal bar from the weight room and confronted Dahmer with a news story that he had kept in his pocket about the atrocities that Dahmer had committed. And at this point, according to Scarver, he says, I asked him if he did those things because I was fiercely disgusted. He was shocked. Yes, he was. He started looking for the door pretty quick. I blocked him. He ended up dead. I put his head down. Scarver then says that he casually crossed the gym and entered a locker room where Anderson was working. And then saying, He stopped for a second, looked around. He was looking to see if any officials were there. There were none. Pretty much the same thing happened. Got his head put out. And Scarver believes that ending up alone with Dahmer wasn't an accident. Especially because prison officials knew that he hated the madman and they wanted him dead, according to Scarver. He would also go on to say, They had something to do with what took place, yes. But Scarver refused to elaborate, claiming he was afraid for his own safety. But he noted that the guards disappeared just before he beat Dahmer with the 20-inch long, 5-pound metal bar from the weight room. I would need a good attorney to ensure there would not be any retaliation by Wisconsin officials or to get me out of any type of retaliatory position they would put me in. And this may be Scarver's story, but not everybody is buying it. Bob, now that you're done playing Scarver, are you buying it? Usually in every lie, there's a morsel of truth. 
That's fair. So some people believe that Scarver's real motive had to do with the fact that Dahmer had predominantly preyed on black victims, but prison officials claim there's no evidence that Scarver's murders of Dahmer and Anderson were racially motivated. Now I'll pause here for a second to say you had asked about Anderson. So his story is kind of like they're working in separate spaces, and so that's how he was able to kind of take out Dahmer and then turn around and take out Anderson to just kind of tie up a loose end here with this Anderson guy. The, the folks who fall into this camp thinking this is like a racially motivated thing, um, they also point to the fact that Anderson was in prison for murdering his wife. Uh, Anderson was white, and uh, like Dahmer was, in case anybody doesn't know. But uh, Anderson had tried during his sort of, when his defense and trial and whatever, he tried to blame the crime on these uh, you know mysterious two black guys who supposedly killed his wife. And so that had sort of inflamed and created some issues around race in his case and made that a storyline there. So it wasn't like this was a guy who was just a random white dude. So for folks who tend to think that maybe race played some kind of factor in this whole thing, there's at least maybe a little bit of credence to why he would go ahead and kill Jesse Anderson as well. Okay, then. Now, moving on ahead to uh, what, what I think is is pretty helpful in all this. Jim Stingle of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has provided what I think is the best rebuttal to Scarver's story. His piece starts out like this, quote, So that's it. Dahmer the cannibal had to die because he played with his food. The article notes that neither Dahmer's attorney nor Scarver's attorney believe it. Dahmer's attorney even calls it ridiculous. And he should know about it, having represented Dahmer and then serving on a governor's commission that investigated the murders of Dahmer and Anderson. While serving as a member of that commission, he went to a federal prison in Missouri along with Scarver's attorney to interview Scarver himself in June of 95, just six months after the two slangs. At that time, right after the crime, not a decade later, Scarver didn't say anything about Dahmer taunting people or making jokes about his crimes or playing with his food. Instead, the attorney says, Scarver told me he had a hit list of five guys who he did not feel were worthy of the word murderer because of who and how they killed. Dahmer's attorney left the investigation convinced that guards had not intentionally left Scarver alone with Dahmer and Anderson so he could kill them. Scarver reportedly told one of the attorneys during an interview that, that Dahmer and Anderson had murdered for unacceptable reasons and that it was humiliating to be in the same work detail with them. As you said earlier, I don't know if there's anything worse than cleaning a prison gym bathroom. Hmm. So Mr. Stingle in this article notes that he covered all of these cases for the Milwaukee Journal. And there had been testimony that Scarver believed he was a million years old and professed to be the son of God. Dahmer's attorney was quoted saying the following about Dahmer. He killed people, but he didn't taunt people. I never saw him do anything that would lead me to believe that he would mimic the deaths that he had just caused. I just don't believe that. Given Scarver's history of mental illness and the proclivity for embellishment, it's hard to put a lot of stock in an exclusive he did with the New York Post 10 years after the fact. But the reality is only Scarver knows exactly why he killed Dahmer and Anderson. Was it because Dahmer targeted the black community? Was it because his crimes were horrific and Scarver was repulsed by being on the same work detail as somebody so heinous? Did he really think God told him to do it? We'll never really know. But the closing line from Stengel's article is worth mentioning here. Still, I'm not buying what Christopher Scarver is peddling. You got any thoughts there, Bob, about this whole Scarver mess and why he did what he did? I really don't know. I mean, it doesn't sound like he's a trustworthy fella. But at the same time, the fact that he, he killed this Anderson dude that not only killed his wife, but then like tried to stir some shit by blaming it on some black fellows 
and then killing Dahmer. I mean, Dahmer and Anderson getting put down in prison couldn't happen to a nicer couple of guys. So, <laughs> we don't know what motivated Scarver, but we know that Dahmer's parents remained divided bitterly all the way to the very end of their son's existence. They couldn't agree over what to do with his body, specifically his brain. His mother Joyce wanted his brain to be studied to see if biological factors played a role in his behavior. She told the journal Sentinel in 1995, quote, I want to make some small usefulness for my own nightmare. I've located experts who feel research on Jeff's brain could be useful. Lionel, on the other hand, wanted the brain cremated per his son's wishes, according to the Los Angeles Times. They actually litigated this issue, and ultimately, Dahmer's brain was cremated pursuant to a court order in December of 1995. Could we waste the court's time with more ridiculous things? So what do you think they should have done with his brain? You know, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> okay, fair. so I get fair. if there's an idea that we can study his brain and figure out maybe there was some thing wired backward in there that gave him this, this predilection... Okay, that could be great for humanity, but I suspect that most of that study would have to be done while he was still alive. I don't know how much you could tell by just looking at the gross anatomy, the structure, or even under a microscope. I, I doubt you'd get much out of that that you couldn't get quickly. In other words, do the dissection and maybe take a slide or two or something, but I don't, I don't really see all that much point but on the other hand if i'm the dad and we're talking about what a him gets cremated or not cremated like i don't think that's a fight i would get into whatever if mom wants to have it chipped off somewhere and studied whatever mm. i mean you could get most of this filthy animal dirty disgusting self just because you couldn't get his brain turned into ashes you know whatever yeah it's just so emblematic of the whole thing right i don't want to say it's fitting but it's certainly not surprising that well, in the end, there was people fighting over one of his organs. Right. Well, That's kind of funny. Well, and that his parents are just, you know, it's, it seems like he would say, and, you know, who knows if it's true or not, but he would say that, that a big part of the genesis of his issues came from his parents and, and the way that they split up and his mom leaving. And so that creates this whole issue where he never wants anybody to leave him. And so here we are, and mom wants to <laughs> ship his brain off to be studied. And Dad's sort of trying to show some loyalty. And remember, Dad was at the trial every day. Or not every day, but, you know, regularly at the trial. And I don't think the same can be said of Mom. So there's some interesting dynamics there. And I just think that's a fitting uh, way to, to kind of bring this story full circle on the death of Jeffrey Dahmer. To many, including Dahmer's own attorney, it comes as little surprise. I, I wasn't shocked because I, I thought that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer would uh, end up this way. Jeffrey Dahmer had served just over two years in prison. And technically, Jeffrey Dahmer is, you might say, the victim in this story, albeit well-deserved. But here at Brothers in Crime, we like to make sure that the victims remain our focus. And the real victims here were those of Jeffrey Dahmer. They are Stephen Hicks, Stephen Tuami, Jamie Doxtetter, Richard Guerrero, Anthony Sears, Ricky Beeks, Eddie Smith, Ernest Miller, David Thomas, Curtis Strauder, Errol Lindsay, Anthony Hughes, Conorak Synthesophone, Matt Turner, Jeremiah Weinberger, Oliver Lacey, and Joseph Bradhoff. Every one of those names, you know, took a minute there to read all those. Every one of those was living, breathing human beings that had a life. They were 
sons, brothers, some were fathers. Until they met Jeffrey Dahmer. At his sentencing, families of victims had lashed out at him, crying, threatening. Manning today said even his death brings little consolation. The hurt is worse now because he's not suffering like we are. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.